0: This is Vital Signs, a podcast on cutting edge trends in health tech and the people shaping them. And super excited today. uh, A long awaited guest finally arrives on the on the podcast uh, in Toyin Ajayi. We've wanted to have you on for so long. Um, I think, you know, obviously everyone knows CityBlock in the in the broader health tech ecosystem. Toyin is the CEO and co-founder of CityBlock. You know a care provider for those who don't know focused on medicaid and dual eligibles uh they provide a really interesting mix of primary care behavioral health chronic disease management with a real focus on social determinants as well uh the company was last valued around six billion dollars it's a red point portco uh and toyan just has an incredible background um you know was a public health leader then the chief medical officer at commonwealth care alliance uh before building city block these past six years uh toyan thanks so much for coming on Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, I'd love to just start with kind of the Medicaid space as a whole. And I feel like you and CityBlock have really been at the forefront of innovating in Medicaid, of kind of proving that there can be venture-backed businesses in the space. And so you did, you know, you started the company six years ago. A lot's changed in those six years. I'm wondering if you kind of just contextualize, like, what you, th- what you see is kind of the state of Medicaid innovation today and, um, you know, kind of where we are in the ecosystem.
1: Well, I mean, even the fact that we're having this conversation and you said the words Medicaid innovation in a sentence um, uh, in your, you know, fancy VC um, recording <laughs> studio is is pretty, that, that, that tells you everything you need to know, actually. Uh, when we started the company six years ago, there there really wasn't a paradigm for building in- in the venture-backed space specifically with a focus on bringing technology, data, analytics, insight, consumer-based design principles to Medicaid. It just wasn't a thing. And, uh, and so it's been amazing to see over the last six years. You know, I think we take some small credit for that, but the ecosystem has certainly shifted where both the, the sort of a moral imperative, I think, perhaps even catalyzed by the pandemic, um, to think about how we apply tech and innovation to marginalized communities, as well as I think businesses like ours that are hopefully continuing to prove that there's a business case here to do this work and that you can actually generate meaningful venture-sized returns while also innovating for populations that typically have been left behind. And so I see that as just a complete landscape shift in the last six years, it's been amazing.
2: Awesome, I, I mean, I think it might be worth like going back to the beginning a little bit, even like the pre city block. Era, because I think it sounds like it informs a lot of well, what you do today. Before City Block, you were the the, the chief medical officer at, at Commonwealth, um, and you did a lot of I think work that was similar to City Block today. And one of the things that we you know talked about with Brad Smith and some other folks who've come on the podcast is like, are there models that exist maybe in the nonprofit world and the pilot phase world, etc. That if you know, given some capital or you know maybe a technology backend, et cetera, could actually be scaled up into a venture scale business. So just like curious, like one, like maybe if you could talk a little bit about some of the work you did at Commonwealth and and how that translates to city block today, and also if you think there are more models maybe that are like sitting in the nonprofit or local uh, like local areas that you think could be scaled further with venture dollars today. Yeah,
1: so I think it's it's a really interesting question. So I mean, I'll start with the beginning and just sort of paint the picture and then I'll I'll try to answer your question. So um Commonwealth Care Alliance, for folks who don't know, is a nonprofit health plan. It's in Massachusetts. It's actually scaled beyond Massachusetts now. Um, but when I was there, it was just solely focused on duly eligible members in Massachusetts. Um it had emerged out of a primary care practice focused on capitation for folks with disabilities, founded by a physician with a real sort of like culture and ethos around um, person-centered care, disability-informed disability rights care that was really, really focused on on moving the needle for folks who otherwise just weren't going to get what they needed in the traditional fee-for-service primary care environment. And I went there um, as a physician who's really, really, really passionate about Serving marginalized populations, the mission really spoke to me. It was a surprising place to go for me um, to go to a health plan because many, I think, doctors who care about underserved populations feel like t- and treat the health plan as the antagonist and not necessarily as the um, the spiritual home that you go to sort of hone your skills and like further your what? mission. Um, what? That's, I know. that's crazy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can't make it.
1: Um, but for me, it was it was an opportunity to learn about how healthcare gets paid for and learn about how the incentive to trickle down to the sort of outcomes and structures that I was interacting with every day as a clinician. Um, and so I, I had a, a really, I think, the opportunity to see a care model that had been built from scratch with the intended population in mind and specifically had picked the hardest to reach, hardest to care for, most complex needs. Folks who are truly, truly being left behind, who also happen to have the highest spend in the healthcare system. These are dual eligibles, and so I do, I do believe that there are models like those that exist in nonprofit spaces that are subscale, certainly sub-national scale, sub-scale in terms of the, the the magnitude of the need in the in the in the population. But what I've seen more often than not, actually, is that there are components of models that exist in nonprofits, and that they lack both. The scale incentive, and so that's that's the business model or the imperative to grow. Um, and often they lack the um, the skills, talents um, at, at all levels, from you know top, top governance all the way down to so people that they're able to attract to the organizations um, to really further that innovation and take those components of models and turn them into something that actually in and of itself can stand and scale. Um, and so I think there's an opportunity there. What happens more often than not, in my experience, is that you see these great ideas um, receive grant funding or um, perhaps it's academic NIH grant funding, perhaps it's philanthropic dollars. They serve a very narrow sliver of a population and they do so very well, but they're unable to touch... Um, folks that go beyond that. And, and that they are able to sustain that work for beyond the life cycle of the grant, because there hasn't actually been the focus spent on what are the internal unit economics of this? How do we actually make this thing self-sustaining over time? Um, and that, that becomes a real, I think, a sinkhole in some ways, where innovative ideas like flare up and then they die and flare up and then they die. And then we sort of reinvent the wheel over and over and over again.
2: So city block was, was spun out of sidewalk labs, right? Which it, in my understanding was kind of an incubation, right? It almost, was, I almost wonder if for a lot of these maybe more specific care models, if they were in something that looked more like an incubator rather than sort of like an academic project, would they kind of, would the ops look different even in the pilot phase that might translate more to a, you know commercial model that actually works um but uh you know what just riffing off that for a second also i'm just curious like um you know sidewalk i mean sorry city block came out of sidewalk and incubators are now like a very hot thing uh right now obviously you guys kind of i think did it before it was cool to, i mean is it cool i don't know actually like uh you know we're wearing two, two out of three people here are wearing wired headphones i don't know if we know what cool is but um um but uh yeah i'm curious like what like what the experience is like coming out of an incubator if you think maybe more companies should or shouldn't test their like assumptions out in one um if you could do it all over again is that a route that you would take just you know since a lot of people are probably considering it now, since there's so many more options for incubators.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the it's clear to me why um, investors incubate companies, right? Especially in a climate like this. Um, I understand what their incentives are, um, and you know, they they have a thesis. They you know can see the the market. They aren't seeing a ton of you know well priced early stage companies or later stage companies, and they want to own more of the economics overall. Like, totally makes sense. Um, As an entrepreneur, I think that there, I'm not sure that there's an easy answer to that question. There's not a binary, right? I think it very much depends on what you're seeking to build and frankly, what your sort of motivations are. I think there's lots of entrepreneurs, I'm not one of them, who just love building businesses and, um, and, you know, give them a problem and they'll get at it and get excited. And what they're looking for is a de-risked path to... Um, to to building a business, and they're they're seeing scale at the other end, and they're seeing the opportunity at the other end, and they're somewhat agnostic is probably too too strong, but they're somewhat less anchored on what the thing is. And I think for others like me, like I joke a lot, but I am not really kidding. Like I'm a one trick pony. Like this is what I do. It's like I all I care about is improving healthcare for like low income people with complex healthcare needs. You know, that's all I care about. And so, if you told me that I had to, like, you know, stand upside down and, you know, beg outside of United Health Care, like, healthcare's like corporate offices for like, six years in order to raise funds to, like, I, that's what I would have done. If you told me I could do anything, you made, I would have done that too. Um, like, I don't, I, and I'm, I'm an end of one at this point. I'm an end of one in terms of experience, and so I can't tell you what the counterfactual would have looked like. Um, but I will say that, you know, um, being able to go to a place like Sidewalk with the with the sort of clarity of purpose that I have um, and convince folks who had not spent their careers in this space that um, that they should take a flyer on myself and my co-founders and on this idea in this segment, on this consumer base, this population that many of them don't know and haven't spent deep amounts of time understanding. Um, that was not a given. Like That was not a, like a slam dunk. You're going to like you know, get your get your thing done. Um, uh, but but it was, I think, a very very useful experience because um, if you can if you can make the business case compelling and make the the alignment between the mission and the business case and the model come to life in a way that folks who didn't grow up thinking about this all day every day can also find compelling. Um, then you have a shot at, you know, pitching someone like, you know, Jacob at Redpoint and, um, and all the others that we've been able and so lucky to get on our cap tables, um, uh, behind this idea at a time when I think it was really, really, I think much more niche and much less established um, than it is today.
2: I hope people listening have higher aspirations.
0: Than yeah, you should definitely them. aspire <laughs> higher than pitching me. There's definitely there's way way better things she uh, was looking at <laughs> <out poor ice.
1: laughs> You're like, <laughs> God. Now I just feel sorry for
2: her. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Like, I guess everyone's got to start somewhere. But, um, bleak, bleak times. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, I guess I'm curious. Like when you were at Sidewalk, and obviously you'd seen at Commonwealth Care Alliance like so much evidence that this model worked. But you know, turning the the model in the context of one market and a nonprofit into a business, you know, as you were building that business plan, I'm curious, like, what did you see as, you know, as you were thinking like, hey, is this thing going to work or not? Like, what were the biggest risks in your mind in like 2017 uh, about whether, you know, City Block was going to be a business? And was it right? I'm curious. Now you're like six years later, right? Yeah, we're like, those are the wrong risks. I don't know why I was focused on that.
1: <laughs> no, no, I was not focused on risks at all. I mean, this is the thing. It's, it's so funny you ask that. Like, if I'd known... Now, what I knew then, like I probably would have been paralyzed with fear and unable to get started. And I think that like for a first time entrepreneur, particularly again, somebody like me who did not come from Silicon Valley, you know, I'm freaking doctor, like I didn't grow up thinking about building businesses. I'd never gone to business school. Like that was, this is not my world. I think the right amount of like naivete and a little bit of like righteous hubris is what's necessary to get going, and um, and I knew this would work because clinically um, and socially, like I know that like the status quo is wildly wasteful, totally inefficient, and like just ripe for disruption. And I I know if you take the the sort of the spreadsheet and take it all the way down to the human beings who were talking about impacting, I know that the plans that we had and continue to have in place for them work. And so the question is, for me, all the unknowns and all the risks emerged much later. It's like, all right, so what's the margin profile of this business at scale? Um, how much revenue do you need to support the opex space to deliver this care, this high-touch, highly personalized care? How do you get the, the business model um, to, to match up what I know is a clinical model that absolutely, certainly can work within the constraints of the economics of the world that we're living in? and. And that, you know, honestly, I think um, we've just been we were we were incredibly fortunate to launch when we launched. I think we had um, some some really promising antecedents. You know, we, st- we 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 stood on the shoulders in many ways of Oak Street, Niora, and many of the other value based um, uh, primary care models, um, for whom I'm like eternally grateful, right? Because they they created a precedent and at least proved to the world that there was a business model. When you say value based care, and um and the idea is that you take you know total capitation total risk on a population and you make money by like finding these folks engaging them delivering services in the community that are lower cost than the hospitalization like that playbook had been written and so what we were trying to do is say you can take this and apply it to medicaid and apply it to duals and yes the care model needs to look a little different and yes the the, the total revenue and the pie is a little smaller, um, but, but the, the sort of the, the go to market motion and the architecture of the business um, is something that, that others had established before us. And so we're really fortunate to be able to sort of follow that precedent.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's super interesting. I feel like now you've you are the precedent that all these new Medicaid businesses can point to and be like, well, city blocks work, and so you know, like this is now. Uh, it, it's cool how it kind of just keeps paying forward in the ecosystem as as more and more gets. That is out.
1: very gratifying, and I, I am really, really, really happy to be able to to pay that forward in the ways yeah. that we have.
0: It's amazing. And I think, as you mentioned, obviously, when you started Block, you know, Oak Street, Iora, you'd done this model at CCA. There there was definitely some uh, some precedence around, you know, how do you save money in some of these risk based models and how do you improve outcomes? And obviously, I think everyone always talks about kind of early intervention to avoid, you know, hospitalizations down the line. I'm curious, like as, as you built out City Block over the last six years, um, I'm sure you had all sorts of instincts of what would work, what wouldn't I'm uh, wondering if there's something that's like surprised you in, in both ways. Something that you, you know, one thing that's just worked surprisingly well that you wouldn't have thought at the time would be so effective. And, and maybe the opposite, one thing that you would have assumed would would be super effective, but maybe hasn't been as effective.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's tons here. I mean, we didn't we 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 were not in a position to sort of take a model that had worked and just like cut and paste it, right? Like the, the CCA model was very different for lots of reasons. First, it was duly eligible members only. So um there was the Medicare component. Um, and um, and that, of course, as you know, really enhances and, and shifts the, the, the economic profile. Um, and so we had to be able to serve a population with much fewer resources available on a per member per month basis than you would at a duals. Um, we also were coming at this as a provider, and that was really, really intentional. Um, we sit downstream of health plans. Um, we're not the plan. We don't seek to be the plan. We do not ever wish to be a plan. Um, we're contracting with plans and taking on the work of of engaging, care coordinating, and delivering primary care and mental health services to these members in conjunction with primary care, and sometimes as the primary care. It really very much depends on the market. So the the, the model needs to look really different for a number of reasons. Um, Most importantly, um, we'd be leveraging non-clinically licensed folks pretty significantly in our model, as opposed to many others. Second, um, we, we had decided early on, and I think this was very much informed by um, certainly my experiences um, providing care to these populations, that the, the heavy bricks and mortar clinic model wasn't going to work for us. Um, we needed to be asset light. We needed to be able to see people in their homes. We needed to really privilege you know out of hours, weekends, 24-7 responsiveness, um, and the ability to, to enter a market and deploy very quickly was very, very important to us in, in terms of the way we set up the business. Um, You know, the thing that I thought would that would work much better than it did was was actually a digital only or digital first engagement. Um, And, you know, in retrospect, no surprises here. But we really thought that, you know, we had an app at the App Store for a while um, for our members like and like hardly anyone (laughs) used it. Um, And um, and we did we did some piloting work around, you know, helping to increase Digital literacy for our members, but the reality is that that our folks really want to to be cared for by humans, um, who they know, who they trust, um, and who they can see and interact with um, in real life, if necessary, um, and and often it, that's necessary. Um, and so we we've really th- and also when they're interacting with digital tools, they want to we we talk about meeting people where they are. And usually we mean that physically. Um, So, you know, you call us, you tell us you have an urgent need, we will go to your house and evaluate you and treat you and manage your needs. But I also think we need to meet people where they are digitally. And for most of our members, that's on SMS. Um, That's not through another app that they have to download and two-factor authenticate their way into every time they want to interact with you. Um, That's not through another sort of pathway that they have to learn. It's where they today exist online. Um, And so we've really taken that to heart and um, have modified the ways that we interact with members digitally um, to to meet them where they are and to be able to flex very much from SMS to telephone to video to in-person in your home to in-person in our clinic to co-visiting with you with your PCP if you have an appointment. That kind of stuff is really the fluidity of the model, I think, has been really essential. And then the thing that um, has worked even beyond my... Um, imagination and um, continues to, I think, just be a reflection of where we are today. is Is our intensive behavioral health interventions. Um, so the work that we do with members with serious mental illness um, and folks who are struggling with addiction, identifying them, um, engaging them, offering people evidence based um, interventions, and making those available like right at the point of need, immediately. Like there's no reason why you should have to go to the emergency room and total body pain from opioid withdrawal to tell us that you're ready to stop using opioids, we should be able to come to you and um, and initiate treatment um, it, 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 whenever you need it. And that has been incredible, not only in terms of sort of member engagement and uptake, but in terms of the, the savings that we've been able to generate um, and the quality improvements that we've been able to realize. Um, and we continue just to scale that work and to see As ubiquitous, both trauma certainly is ubiquitous in our population, just chronic trauma. Um, And then often the sequelae of that or the the sort of corollaries of that showing up in serious mental illness and addiction are very, very, very prevalent in our population.
2: So you said you never wanted to be a health plan. And I, you know, when I first heard about City Block, one of the things I thought was, Well, this would be kind of interesting if it sort of like went full vertical within a given state, right? Like became a Medicaid plan that's maybe focused on California and New York, I think was their first market. And New York is obviously a massive Medicaid um, state, right? Um, And, you know, you guys have chosen to focus on the care delivery aspect of it and move state by state. I'm curious, like why going into the health plan, like being a local Medicaid plan, like full stack was never in the cards for you. Like, is it just... Is it building, like, a certain expertise that, like, you never wanted to bring in-house? Is it just because that business isn't good? It feels like a lot of the dollars that basically will, like, flow through the health plan then to you, you basically could get more of that margin dollar, right?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, so it's a great question. So, I mean, I'll ask you, like, with the exception of Kaiser, can you name a health plan that a person, like, if you got a phone call and it was, like, my health plan like shows up on caller ID. You're like, dope. I'm excited to talk to them. Like, or you know, you get you get an eviction letter in the mail. and You're like, I know. I'm going to call my health plan and tell them about it. Um, and when you think about what we're what we're solving for, like we're fundamentally solving for trusted relationships with people with whom the healthcare system has failed to build trust to date. Those are the folks who end up being the most medically, socially, psychiatrically complex patients. And those are the folks who end up driving the significant amount of spend in the healthcare system. And if you say to them, as a prerequisite for having access to me, you have to have this health insurance and you have to see me as synonymous to this thing and also still want to give me access to your deepest, darkest needs and to your home as a care provider, that's a very tricky line to walk. And what we saw when we launched the company was that there was no ubiquitous trusted brand for healthcare for low-income communities. There just isn't. Um, And that's what we're seeking to build. Because if we can do that, um, then we have the ability to effectively span across multiple health plans, offer this capability, and offer this experience of care to people who just need to be connected to the system. The health plan is a transactional layer for most people, um, and we're seeking to be very, very different from that. And so it was really important to us. I think the other thing is that you know, and this is this was in many ways this was what Commonwealth Carolines was when I was there. It was both a, a plan and a health delivery organization. Um, we actually owned and operated practices. Many of those, the sort of the the um, strategy for the organization is you realize how hard it is to both be excellent at papering a network, winning Medicaid bids and paying claims on time and also be like excellent at, you know, customer service and care delivery. It's really hard to do both. Um, And um, because healthcare is a scale game, right? Like actually being excellent in healthcare requires some element of scale. Being constrained by one plan or by a plan chassis in order to deliver the services that we deliver was going to constrain our ability to actually like Make the business work. Um, and so we had a, a number of reasons. First, you know, that brand, that relationship, that experience that we're building. And secondly, the business requires us to serve multiple plans in a specific geography in order to achieve sufficient scale to make the unit economics work and to get to become excellent at providing healthcare to low-income Medicaid folks in Brooklyn as an example.
0: Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. I mean, you talk about kind of like the, the scope of what you, you offer and being kind of focused and, and obviously, um, you know, excellent at the, the stuff you do. And I think, you know, one interesting thing that, that I, I feel like is true about CityBlock is once you have this trusted relationship with the patient, you really do have the right to kind of go, you you could offer so many different kinds of services. And, I, and I'm curious, like how you thought about like, the kinds of services you wanna offer directly versus where you won't, you know, I think you, you were bringing up earlier kind of like intensive behavioral health and addiction. And it's an interesting category, right? There's like standalone companies that all they do is like SMI. And I'm sure like there's, there's, you know, many other examples like this, but curious how you think about like, hey, this is where it makes sense for Citiblock to have a core offering versus we can partner with, you know, someone else that really all they do is, is kind of this focus.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and we we think about this a lot, right? Like, um, I I there's no hubris here or um, ideology here about like what we have to own and what we don't. I think the things that we 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 focus on are places where we're differentiated, um, uh, where we have a specific unique skill set or capability that we don't see out in the market and that we know our members need. And for us, that's and that that may shift over time, right? Like when we first started, as you said. There just weren't a lot of folks out there even to partner with right but the things that we know we do exceptionally well um, and that we are meaningfully differentiated at are first of all engagement so finding people and convincing them that they ought to trust us with their needs and with their care um, that's that's really 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 hard to do in medicaid and with the duals population plans find it difficult providers find it difficult um, we've really like perfected that skill set and and we will continue to hone that Um, The second thing that we realize that we're excellent at doing is understanding needs and predicting needs. And the reason why I I start there is that's really, really important when you think about some of the needs that are much more difficult to discern through data. So if you needed to know which of your population um, has NSH kidney disease on dialysis, like well, you get claims. And the claims are pretty robust. People are pretty good at billing insurance um, and documenting NSH kidney disease. If you're trying to find out who's struggling with with trauma or mental health challenges or houselessness that's perpetuating their emergency room utilization or addiction, that's much, much, much harder to find um, in in off-the-shelf data sets through off-the-shelf tools and certainly it's much more hard to, much more difficult to find if you don't understand longitudinally a full population of folks and so we have really built a differentiated data set um, and data signals that help us first identify people who have likely have conditions and needs that are significantly unmet in the ecosystem um, because we know that that many folks with mental health challenges are not receiving the right care that they need it's not going to show up in the claims otherwise and so with that information then we said okay well We need a solution. I'll pick the serious mental illness example. We need a solution for folks who are struggling with serious persistent mental illness, who are struggling to take their meds regularly, and who, as a result, are both at risk for worsening of their chronic physical conditions and at risk for significant um, psychiatric and physical health hospitalizations and disproportionately high spend. And when you look out in the market, there's actually not as much as you would expect focused on ambulatory interventions for these populations. And we, we knew that because of the team that we had, the experience that we have, our um, last mile care delivery capabilities, we can send a, a, a clinician to your home within an hour, less than an hour, um, of your telling us you have a need, who can get an EKG, can give you fluids, can video in with a, with a psychiatrist, Can if you decide you want a long-acting injectable antipsychotic medication, can get that prescribed, and back to your house and in your arm all in the same day. Um, and that is actually what's necessary to sort of solve for these needs. And for us, um, recognizing that, that these members needs span both the physical and the behavioral as well as the social, that was so important for us to keep in. Now, are we going to build a differentiated you know, uh, care model for folks with chronic kidney disease and who are on dialysis? Like, Absolutely not. There are wonderful, excellent companies out there doing this work that we would be delighted to partner with. Um, And so really, we're taking this sort of approach to say, we know what our members need, where our expertise is going to be finding, engaging and understanding what our members need. And then it is our job to be really discerning about where do we build and deliver ourselves, because it's essential to the relationship. Because it's a capability that we don't see done well otherwise, um, that we can't really see a partnership opportunity to, um, or where do we partner? Because we think there are excellent um, folks out there doing really great work who we would love to, to to pull into our ecosystem.
2: It's kind of crazy to think about like how many companies are dependent on claims data, which like inherently has like an extremely long lag to try and and use them for to like monitor patients that need interventions, right? Because like by the time you get that data feed, you're way too late, right? Like That's so they- right, and
1: that's where the risk with a lot of these vertical companies I see that are sort of single disease, single condition specific comes in play. It's it's they're dependent for attribution and assignment on a data signal that massively lags the need of the person that they're serving. Um and and they don't if they're building just for that one capability, well what happens when, you know, as we hope this member who was struggling with, you know, um, a psychiatric exacerbation is now stabilized. But guess what? Like after all those years of being on antipsychotic medications, they now have diabetes and high blood pressure and chronic kidney disease and heart failure. Do you hand them off to someone else now? And then you hand them back? Like, you know, I think the ability for us to say we are your longitudinal home. Um, We focus on primary care, we focus on behavioral health, and we focus on social care, and we recognize that, that for many of our members, their needs are going to wax and wane over time, but they have an absolute necessity for this longitudinal relationship that can bridge them to the right services, right time, most of which we we can deliver ourselves, but many of which we will at some point need to partner to. And that's really, I think, that's the the sort of essential need um, in driving long-term outcomes for these
0: populations. And I guess like, you know, you mentioned earlier, obviously taking inspiration from like the Oak Street and and Iora models. Um, You know, if I think about, and you talked about kind of the differences between like Medicaid and, um, you know, and and kind of more traditional Medicare risk-based models. If I think about like one of those differences, you know, there's certainly like within Medicaid, a larger population of like lower acuity patients, right, that like are lower cost for, for the system. And I'm curious like how you've thought about taking some of these models that have worked really well for kind of high spend patients and, you know, being able to treat, I guess, the the entirety of like a, of a payer's Medicaid population and what you've like learned about or how you think about that model for, for lower acuity patients.
1: Yeah. So we, we focus on, um, adults, um, with complex physical, behavioral, social needs. So higher end of the spectrum in terms of spending complexity, um, uh, on Medicaid. And then we, and then we also take all of, the duly eligible population with our plan partners because, by definition, these folks are at the at the extreme end of complexity, you know, compared to a general Medicare Advantage population or compared to a general Medicaid population. Um, we we do have a couple of, um, uh, of of instances in which we we take the full what we call full stack. So um, you know, TANF, um, pregnant moms and kids, um, younger folks, um, but that that is that's the exception rather than the rule for us. Um, and I think what what I would I would say a couple things. One is, is Medicaid is as we talk about Medicaid being really heterogeneous. I think I think Medicaid is a very different product for folks with complexity than it is for folks with non complexity. And what I mean by that is people with high complexity. So your folks who are um, what's defined in Medicaid is ABD, so age, blind, and disabled folks who also qualify for Social Security um, insurance, disability insurance, folks like that are likely to remain persistently on Medicaid for a long period of time. These are not people for whom Medicaid is a safety net um, stopgap. Say you're in between a job. Say you just found out you were pregnant. Say you just have a newborn and a, a young child. Like for Those people tend to come in and out of Medicaid. And I think the program is intended to essentially provide that real safety net. It's a pass-through in many ways to ensure that there is access to a network of providers who can offer services to these members who are unlikely to require significant things above and beyond primary care, preventive care, uh, delivery if you're pregnant. Um, and, and, and routine sort of screening otherwise um, with the occasional episodic kind of um, accident or something like that. That is a very different experience than from folks who are longitudinally dependent and likely to be dependent on Medicaid for a period of a significant period of time because they have ongoing complex and chronic needs that will worsen if not adequately addressed in the in the ecosystem. and And for those folks, um, our model is has been tailored for those folks, right. It's been tailored for people whom we must get upstream of um, in order to ensure that we're actually preventing worsening of illness. And to ensure that we are delivering high quality experiences, um, and to ensure that we know what's going on for them, so that we can actually address their needs. I think it's very different from folks um, uh, for whom you know they may interact with the health system one or, once or twice a year um, as part of their sort of usual course of of, of just living as a younger, healthier person, um, where the opportunities for sort of cost savings are actually minimal. They weren't designed. It wasn't designed in that way. It was designed much more to be essentially a. I pass through reimbursement for services rendered for people um, with less complexity and less need. And discerning, like the difference between the two is you know sometimes requires some, some analytics and some nuance. Um, but once you can stratify the population effectively, um, it allows us to invest our model and the sort of high-touch um, resources that we bring to bear um, in places where we know that there's need and that there's an opportunity to, to, to bend the cost curve
2: obviously like Medicaid is very state-by-state based. There's a lot of different changes from regulations from one state to another, what gets covered, what isn't, blah, blah, blah. Like how has the model changed as you go from state to state? And I'm also curious, like, what makes a state easier or harder to work in for you all? There are no easy states.
1: (laughs) 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 Spoiler alert. Um, So, you know, like many startups... um, when we first launched, we we were kind of bespoke per market, right? Like we I mean per partner um b- building the model. We were very, very customized, very locally kind of um uh, driven. And um and it's really only been over the last, I'd say, three years that we've focused on saying, okay, how do we standardize this thing so that we understand that that 8020, the 80 that is truly, truly scalable, repeatable. Consistent and the 20 that has to be definitionally customized to that local environment. And that was a sort of my gut was like, it's 80-20. We don't know. Um, let's figure it out. And what we found is that, um, is that there's there's a lot about, despite the fact that Medicaid is heterogeneous and the, the state-by-state regulations look different, who's in and who's out of the, the benefit looks different, what's covered, what's not covered, those are all very different. And then, of course, the local dynamics of the market, the provider landscape, um, the access to social um, uh, services and partners, that all varies state-by-state. But when you get sort of to the um, almost to the, the the nuts and bolts of what we deliver as a company, there are so many so many similarities that are completely agnostic to what state you're in. So first thing we got to do is we got to know our population. Um, we've got to be able to ingest the data that we receive from our health plan partners, um, disaggregate it, um, normalize it, um, uh, segment the population, identify not just who's high risk, but for what. What do they need from us? Which care pathway should they be enrolled in? And what are our expectations for what we will deliver to folks within each component of our care model, and what are the outcomes that we expect? So we know who's likely to have a serious mental illness. We, we know who's likely to have unmet need for physical health and chronic physical conditions. We know who's likely to have social needs. Um, and we continually are refining that data. That we do across the board every time, every market pre-launch, and then we continue to update. Every time we get new data on the member, either data that we ourselves populate, the community health partner meets them, does an assessment, they tell us that they're homeless, or we get a claim in from a hospitalization or a pharmacy um, uh, claim. We're updating and refreshing our knowledge of that member. And again, that is that those models run across our, our, our population. The second thing we have to do, no matter where you live, in North Carolina, Brooklyn, we we got to find you. We've got to get good contact information for you and we've got to somehow convince you to trust us and to trust us with your healthcare information and your healthcare needs. Um, and that motion looks the same wherever we are. Um, getting good contact information, having trained staff from the communities we serve, who sound like the members they're reaching out to, who have the experience and the credibility and the tenacity to go after finding them. like That we do repeatedly every single time, no matter what market we're in, no matter what Medicaid program you're in, we gotta find you, we gotta convince you to trust us. The next thing we've gotta do once we have found you and we know what you need is give you what you need. And um, And more often than not, it's the same stuff. It's a primary care visit. It's um, access to preventive care. It's mental health screening and mental health care. It's support for your social needs. Now, what that support looks like on the social side may look different. In um, you know, in one market, maybe we accompany you to a food pantry. In another, maybe we actually like deliver food to your home. Um, in yet another, it may be that we're act- we're providing supports to your caregiver and loved one to help them support you better. Um, and so, the sort of the last mile may look different, but the the, the sort of what, what we contain within the model, again, is very, very, very scalable and very standardized. And then if you call us in the middle of the night, we got to be able to respond, you know? And, we, and this 24-7 access point is critical. Um, and so, yeah, so those, those are the components of the model that look the same. The contracting, the what's in or out of the benefit, the who are we partnering with, that looks different for sure. Um, but, but the essence of what we do to drive medical savings and drive outcomes is the same.
0: You know, one thing I'm curious about. We hear a lot that, like, you know, one of the difficulties in in operating in Medicaid is just the like state by state differences of, you know, both the the care offerings, benefit design. Like, if if we gave you kind of like a magic wand and you could like change or standardize some policy or make, you know, what, what would like on from a policy standpoint, what could we do to just make building in Medicaid easier on the on the startup side?
1: Oh, um, can I can I flip the question? I I hope that well. It may be different answers if you're trying to make it easier to build or be easier to deliver services. I think let's start with like what makes Medicaid better, like more more likely to like meet the needs of, of Medicaid members. Um, and I think the the sort of policy interventions for me would be first integrate physical and behavioral health. Um, it's not the case today in all states that that the benefits are integrated, um, and often there are carve outs that mean that um, that that there's not an incentive to actually think about the whole human in the same site of care. Um, with the same set of needs. So let's do that. Um, and then I think the the magic, and that, and that would meaningfully, I think, improve people's lives and their well-being and their access to services, and certainly would enhance the ability for startups to build. I think the thing, the most important thing, and this will be my answer until it's fixed whenever someone asks me what policy changes we need, is we need like real data standards and expectations around data exchange from plans to at-risk providers. Um, we absolutely have to have that. And um, you know the plans have the data. Um, and it is difficult to pass that along to at-risk providers today, or providers who are seeking to bear risk. And we have an opportunity, I think, to, um, as part of our sort of, I think there's an industry-wide commitment to value-based care. I think there's a recognition, though, that there is real infrastructure that's necessary to enable that. And that infrastructure is around, like, who's your member? What do they need? And what just happened to them? And like, how do we get that data more readily available across the ecosystems so that other people can act on that data, including startups, can act on that data to improve outcomes for members?
2: A, a quick naive question, like just going back to the, the behavioral health carve-out stuff. What is the like ideology for states to carve that out versus carve it in? Like, carving in makes a lot of sense logically to me, but I assume there must be some. Counter argument: Otherwise, every state would have done this by now.
1: Totally, and it's not—it's not a—you know—it's not a—it's you know, it, certainly not a. I get why people do it, right? Like, it's not a terrible idea that you know has no has no basis in reality. I think the reality is that um, that access to behavioral health providers and the ability to get them reimbursed sufficiently to participate in the Medicaid program has been really challenging historically for plans. The level of expertise that's necessary to build a network of behavioral health providers, which tend to be smaller, um, less sort of uh, consolidated, um, less technically advanced, um, varies very much from the level of expertise necessary to build a good primary care or a good specialty network. And so I think um, states that have done this historically have done so because they want to be able to push incentives much more quickly towards providers. They want to be able to work with a smaller number of entities that have expertise in behavioral health That can really manage those networks, manage the benefit, manage those providers. And they want to have some more flexibility to be able to sort of enhance what they offer. It comes from a good place. I really get it. Um, But the the sort of unintended negative consequence is that um, then you have two different entities holding financial risk for the same human being. where their needs interact dramatically um, all the time, you know, and um, and and it makes it very difficult to care coordinate across both of those physical and behavioral domains.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like every company this year now, especially tech-enabled services companies, are like, oh shit, we have to like make money now, uh, <laughs> <it's> now like, <laughs> and they're like, Uh-oh, uh oh, we need to be profitable. Uh, and I've seen that you've you've commented this on a few places of like we're trying to we need to push to profitability and blah blah blah. So I'm curious like now, I mean, Cityblock is probably one of the more mature private digital health companies at this point. Curious like how. Like what is the shift to profitability actually meant for you all and like how is, you know, you know, how has that changed things and maybe like what you were planning versus what you're doing now and, and, and how the shift has actually been internally.
1: Yeah, I mean, it hasn't felt as, it's been interesting to watch this sort of external narrative in the ecosystem, because it was a lot of like, grow, 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 and it's like, oh, no, make money. Ah. Um, and it has felt like like a very dramatic kind of swing. Um, it didn't feel like that for us internally. I think um, you know one of the things that we've been really mindful of from the beginning was to make it very clear that our mission is both about delivering care to our members that is exceptional, that meaningfully changes their outcomes, and that you know proves that the care model can deliver. And also that as as a company, we have to do that in a sustainable and scalable way, right? Like we have to prove that we are that 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 a company focused on Medicaid members with the most complex needs deserves to stand alongside any other company that is um, that is considered successful in the space in which we've decided to occupy because that allows us to continue to scale and grow. And so that that focus on profitability has always been important to us. I think what's shifted for us and for many, many companies is that we are recognizing that not only do we have to focus on that, but we have to focus on it like now. Um, And I think there was always that sense, you know, in 2020 and 21 was like, you could raise more money and keep growing and you could push out profitability in favor of growth. um, Such that it became almost theoretical for many companies, right? Like the path to profitability was like a sentence that we used that was like, kind of abstract, you know? Um and like and and was 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 fungible, right? The notion was ex- it was expected that it would be fungible. And I think that has shifted because not only do we know that um that our business that the market requires us to demonstrate the ability to make a profit, but also that there is no capital easy to go get to come to come smooth that course or to 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 prolong the the the, the road for you. Like you really have to to be clear that you can deliver that within the constraints of the cash you have available, and we are very fortunate. I think that um, that we raised when we raised and have been, you know, really prudent stewards of those resources, um, such that we can say that right. Like we have a path to profitability within the constraints of the resources we have available to us today. Um, and it's it's my job, it's the job of the team to ensure that is always true for us because the climate will not tolerate, you know, um, any, any sort of, um, uh, desire to push that out.
0: I'm informed that we're, as a venture podcast, we're contractually obligated to ask you about gender AI. There's just no way we're allowed to go through this full episode and, and not at least say the words, um, but I am I am curious like you know I would love to hear just like about you know is city block using generative AI today how do you like think about the role some of this stuff might play in the in the business going forward
1: well it's funny because because <laughs> you're your rapid fire questions I was prepping for those ones and I was like underhyped overhyped both I don't know um, uh, so, <laughs> so you know I, I'm actually I'm, I'm really bullish on on generative AI and its, and it's potential applications in our business I think the places um, uh, you know when you have a business that is um, really really focused on uh, delivering at scale a customized or customizable bespoke experience to human beings um, with constrained operating expenses like that's a real opportunity for a a, a total like paradigm shifting technology to disrupt and optimize and, and further optimize the economics of the business and so I'm excited about the role that generative AI can help play for us as we continue to um to hone and refine and expand uh, particularly on our engagement capabilities i think there's a lot there and so we've we 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 do have a team that's working on on that um uh and 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 partnering with others to to ensure that we are able to take advantage of the best possible technology there Um, i think our ability to understand in real time i talked about this earlier like what our members need from us and to predict how best we can engage them in those in the care that they need to get a better outcome feels very very ripe right for um, for for enhancement with generative AI, and so we're excited about that too. Um, I think the you know for many, I think many of the sort of the the back office um, uh, functions that we depend on in order to be reliable and consistent for our members will also benefit from generative AI there I think the, the the role for organizations like us is not to build those tools but to go find the very best possible partners and ensure that we take advantage of, of those technologies so I think scheduling um, I think you know uh, just documentation and provider workflows like all of that stuff I, I truly believe will be unrecognizable in the next five or ten years as a result of of, of generative AI and we're not going to be building like, The next best scribe for providers, but like I, I want that in every single one of my providers' hands as soon as it's possible and it's available.
2: I also feel like I'm sure for your member population, there's so many government forms that they probably have to go through for social needs. That's right. Every time I look at one of those, I'm like, this really should just be Gen AI. Gen AI existence totally. So my last question is, you know, I'm curious about what CityBlock's experience was like in participating in the direct contracting um, program, because the results are obviously out now. And people, you know, if there's there's that we were talking a little bit earlier about, like, how do you take the care model that's maybe specific for one yeah. area and then try to apply it more broadly to other areas? I'm just curious, like what the experience was like for you all taking part of that
1: yeah i mean it was a true ex- experiment for us um and we we sort of took it on we called it internally this was a pilot we're going to test it out we took a very small modest swing and asking exactly that question can we take a care model that has been optimized for high risk medicaid and duly eligible members where we are the providers city block is the is the provider of care and can we infuse that into a partnership with a, a health center actually so a, a more traditional fee-for-service provider um across a less complex population um, and you know without without sort of sharing too much I think the reality was that it was probably more than we should have taken on um, and um, and not well suited to our model and I think what we find um, and and the folks who have done really well have have been I mean I think really optimized for this right like these are many for many of them these are fee for service members, they already were caring for who they were able to um, take advantage of this new opportunity to get into risk relationships directly with CMS. Our operating model looked very different from our traditional operating model, and I think it was a good lesson for us. So we, we struggled, certainly. Um, uh, we also had a small population, and so there's some volatility associated with that that, um, that just played not in our favor in one year and has played in our favor in other years. Um, and so, um, you know, par, par for the course, for sure, for the learning, um, no doubt.
2: Are you saying you're going to become a
1: health
0: plan? Well, I feel like it wouldn't be it wouldn't be fair to the ecosystem if you were like the leading, per, you know, the leading player and like literally. Everyone.
1: I mean, I would be fine with that. To be clear, let me be clear. I would be yes. fine with
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> but Toya, this has been, I mean, such a fascinating conversation. I feel like you know, you, you, we we've been excited to have you on for a while, and, and certainly we can see why. Um, I think folks are really going to enjoy this. Uh, you know, want to just leave it with, uh, you know, your opportunity to kind of plug anything. You know, where can folks go to learn more about you about six? Block, you know, anything you kind of uh, point our oh, well, listeners thank to. Thank you for
1: that. Um, so, the best place to go for us is, is our website, www.cityblock.com. We have an active social media presence. We always welcome hearing from folks. I personally am not super active on social media. I feel badly. I mean, I, I follow Farzad. He was just on your podcast. He's so good. <laughs> I aspire to be like this. Um, I just can't. But, um, but, you know, that's probably the best place to find us as well as on LinkedIn. So, um, and thank you guys. This has been really fun.